0: So we'll get yours, and I'm not going to waste any more time. But give you Virginia from Charlotte, North Carolina. You
1: love my wheels. <laughs> I know. I
0: forgot. I never did put, use the brakes. I always use the foot, the gas pedal. <laughs> My name is Virginia Melton. I'm a member of the Thursday Morning Al-Anon Family Group in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I also attend the Queen City Al-Anon Group on Monday nights and the Queen City Open Meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on Friday nights. And if you don't attend Open AA meetings and you're a member of Al-Anon, I would ask you why not. Our purpose is to welcome and comfort the relatives of alcoholics, to learn to understand and encourage the alcoholic, and to grow spiritually ourselves through the 12 Steps. And there's no better source of learning how to better understand and encourage the alcoholic in your life than open meetings. Because I would listen and heard things from strangers sharing at AA meetings that my husband could have said the same thing and I wouldn't have heard it. And so I, I, I encourage you to do that. It is a delight to be here. I think we suffer from overexposure. We've been here so frequently, but it truly has been a wonderful weekend. And I think I've said several times, what has impressed me most this weekend has been the laughter. And I don't even have to know what you're laughing about. I just feel good when I hear everybody laughing. I think all of us cried too long and about things that weren't worthy of even crying over. And so to, to hear the laughter and to feel the joy is a wonderful, wonderful freedom. I was born on the eastern shore of Maryland into a relatively well-to-do family family. It was a drinking family. I didn't know, there was never any talk about being a sin or anything like that. They were in a fortunate position in that the responsibilities that they had, if they were incapable of fulfilling them, they had people that would. They could hire them to take care of us. And I was the youngest of four children. The Depression came along, and some of you learned about it in history, and some of you lived through it, I'm sure, Uh, (laughs) if you're honest. Um, And the family was wiped out. And they went to pieces. And I, I developed a reverse snobbery that if you were well-educated, socially prominent, and had money, and whatever, they can do with you. Because I saw people like that that were I thought were shallow and vain, and they went to pieces when the times got hard. And through the program, I've come to realize that isn't true. They weren't shallow and vain. They were people that had no no inner resources on which to rely. And it's all right now. I don't I don't resent you or shy away from you if you're prominent or rich or well educated. I just hope you have more than that. I hope you have what this gives us on the inside. They'll be with us no matter what what event comes up in our lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. When I was seven we went to live with our maternal grandparents in western Pennsylvania. My father had a heart condition and he was never to leave Maryland and he died very shortly thereafter. And my mother left and uh, I used to lie about it because when you said you didn't know where your mother was, it opened a whole can of worms and people went, no, 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 no. So I learned to say that my parents were dead when asked. And then it was very uncomfortable when people say, oh, I'm so sorry. But that was easier to live with and being able to, than than saying that I didn't know where she was. But it also was something I didn't want to examine too closely because one of the common traits that I see in we and Al-Anon is a misplaced sense of responsibility. And I thought someplace along the line it was my fault she left. I never thought it was my brother's and my sister's fault. It was my fault. There was something about me that she couldn't stand. And I've accepted for a long time that this lady couldn't face life with four children and no money. And uh, so that's okay. I've, I've come to peace about that. I had, for years, had a love-hate feeling towards her. And in later years, I was to find her again, We'd be reunited with her, and thought that The hole that I felt here would be gone if I had a mother-daughter relationship like I saw other people had. But I learned to love her, but I didn't like her. Her principles were not ones that I found desirable. But at any rate, that's over and done a long time ago. I was awarded the Orphan's Court, and I approached the court when I was 17 and asked permission to leave Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I equated unhappiness and sorrow and trouble with Pennsylvania, and I wanted to get as far away as I could, and I went to Los Angeles, and I was to go to school there, but I didn't have enough credits, and the next few years I was to do a considerable amount of drinking that gave me cause to reflect when I got here in which room I belonged, but I won a copy of the big book. We used to go to meetings, and you'd put your name on a piece of paper, and they'd put it in a paper bag, and when they had the price of a big book, they'd pull a name. And I my name was Poole. Now Buck had a big book, but that was his and I had not touched it. But I read mine when I wanted. And I learned in that book I belong. I was right where I belonged in the Alman family groups. I lived with my grandparents until they died within seven months of one another when I was eleven and as I say it became a ward of the court and it was a lot of unhappiness and sorrow and was a very lonely existence and I felt very, very sorry for me. You know, Buck said last night he took enough terpen hydrate he'd never have to cough again to live to be 100. I served myself enough self-pity. I'll never need any pity as long as I live either. (laughs) But anyhow, I got it in my head to leave, and I did leave, and I went to California, and I was to be out there several years. And uh, I had a roommate at the Evangeline Residence for, for Women, which was a hotel for women, who was coming to North Carolina. And I told her, wait till I work a notice, and I'll go with you. Because you see, by this time, we were the only grandchildren on either side of the house, and our grandparents were all dead, and our parents were dead or gone, and, and uh, so we were just will o' in the wind, if you will. And I came to North Carolina, and very shortly after, I met the man to whom I'm still married, and you heard him last night. And I refused to debate any questions or anything he brought up. I just am above that. I'm just.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, And we started dating and having a good time. And he used to say, when I showed up with those uh, long neck beers, I was bold. And I said to him one time back, Well, why do you call me bold? Don't you think I was smart enough to recognize a jewel when I saw it? Stop saying I was bold after that. (laughs) Anyhow, we got serious, and I say, He asked me, and he says, I asked him to marry. And, uh, um,. Doesn't matter, we both knew we'd made a mistake for a long time.
1: <laughs>
0: We're gonna grin and bear it by God. We'll uh, you know. Uh, fine, fine, I'm fine, you know. But I went back to California and Buck came and got me. And I sometimes forget to tell that. And uh, see he was willing to go to any lengths long for her to AA, wasn't he? <laughs> And we came back to North Carolina, and I want to tell you that almost 60 years ago, if you weren't born in North Carolina, you were a foreigner. And I married into a very good family. I hear a lot of people tearing down their in-laws and having unkind, cruel things to say. My in-laws were good to me. They were good people. They didn't understand me. I didn't understand them. But that never got in the way. They were always good to me. And I... I have had great respect for them, and I'm very grateful for them. And we were going to be married in the fall, but there was so much chatter about I. L. as he's known to the family, marrying this somebody from some place that didn't have any family. So we ended up getting married in May. And uh, next, uh, this coming May, we'll have 56 years of, of marriage. Now, if you've not, you've heard a lot of talk about miracles. I'm going to assure you that's a miracle because we damn near killed one another or would have died from what we're, if we'd continued doing what we were doing. And it hasn't been blissful. And since sobriety, we haven't been walking down the flowered trail. You know, I heard somebody say one time, since I've been in Al Anon and my husband's been in AA, we haven't had a cross word. And I thought, what am I not doing? You know, what, what am I not doing? You know. As Buck and I would start meetings in the car, get out. Hello, how are you? Yes, yeah, oh, this God-given program, thank you. I'll see you next week. Get back in the car. Now, what were you saying? (laughs) Oh, dear. I had a lot of jealousy about Buck going to AA. I didn't know anything about AA. But he was going places on a regular basis, and he was coming back sober. And after all I had done to get him sober, I had led this life of example, and he still hadn't. And he went off with a bunch of strangers and wasn't drinking. Oh, that'll get you! That'll get you! But at any rate, uh, Beck and I were married, and we didn't have much of anything. We still don't have. We have sufficient, more than sufficient. But we we were never rich or anything like that. We worked hard. When we got married, I went to Five and Dime, bought two plates, two cups, two saucers, two knives, two forks, two spoons, two enamel pots, and a tin skillet. And that's how we, and we bought groceries according to how much money we had left at the end of, of payday for paying rent and all that. That's how many groceries we got. But we got along good. But my perception was a little broader than cornflakes in a mattress, but that's his story. <laughs> Oh, dear. And as he said, we had an opportunity to go into business for ourselves. Now, I took a lot of garbage into, the male, into that marriage that I didn't know that I took into it. The sense of being responsible, uh, not being worthy. Uh, this God of love. Uh, where was he? I lived in a lovely home with anything you wanted and everything you needed and many of the things you wanted. And then I was given a dollar a day by orphan's court on which to live. And I've walked to school in the snow with holes in my shoes, and I've had sores in my mouth from not eating properly. So where was this God of love? And I blamed God, because I thought God was all-powerful. I had to learn that it was the decisions of men, decisions of other people, and my own decisions that led me on the wrong way, or led them on the wrong way, that resulted in pain and sorrow and unhappiness for many people. But at any rate... Uh, We were very successful, and I felt very important. I was worthy, and I didn't mind but going off on his sprees, because I was lost. Now, you know where my self-esteem was in running a business that you feel fulfilled. But just like anything else, if I find my fulfillment, my satisfaction, and my self-worth, and my sense of being in the wrong thing, it's terminal. It won't last. And, of course, that didn't last and then I became resentful of the fact that he had all this freedom. And of course, until I got here, I thought when he went out and got drunk, it was because he chose to and he was having a good time. And I resented him having a good time because I wasn't having a good time. And time passed, and and, uh, he told you that Christmas Eve that we moved, he'd been gone on a drunk, and uh, a man owed us some money, and the only time he could move us was on Christmas Eve. And I remember when he drove, have you ever? has your heart ever beaten so loud and so hard it's like somebody beating your ears? You can hardly think, let alone hear. And when he drove up that Christmas Eve day, that's what I felt. And I remember telling him I wasn't leaving there to leave him. But my reputation wasn't very good either because any time somebody would say Buck was someplace, I'd get in the car and go, go look and see if he was. And if I'd find him, you know I, what I was going to do, and then I never would do it, if I didn't find him, I was a failure again. I didn't find him. Uh, Buck says, if you forget where you are, just start over. So, my name's Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> but the girls and I, we have three daughters, were not as unhappy that Christmas day as Buck was, and I've often wondered about that, and it hurts me if he pains over that any still to this day. But I know now, I've learned through the program, you see, we were taking some action. We were making a change. We were trying to do something about the situation in which we were. And I think so, and we all know that action is the key to this entire program. You can know everything there is to know in the big book or in our Al-Anon literature, but if you don't use it, you might as well not know a darn thing. Because really you don't, because you haven't learned to put it in action. Um came back to Charlotte, I got a job, but it was in and out, and up and down, and I always thought it can't get any worse. <laughs> of course it can get worse, and it does, and it will, unless there's something to, some intervention of some kind, some uh, admission that this has got to change, and that mission was on Buck's part. I did not go to Al-Anon before my husband, I did not go seeking help when I did go. All of a sudden, he was going out every day, coming back when he said he could. The greatest amends any alcoholic can make to their family is to do what they say they'll do when they say they'll do it, and if they can't, to fess up and say, I can't do that. I said I'd be home at eight, but it won't be. I'm sorry. And the first few times you say that to your family, they'll probably, yeah, I know, but they'll learn to trust again. And if you think we don't need to tr- learn to trust again, then read your big book, because it is... In it, alcoholics write to other alcoholics, our track record isn't so good, we have to prove ourselves. And I always tell new people in Al-Anon that if you have suspicions when somebody is late, don't feel guilty about it. Because they are being told, if they're going to a meeting worth its salt, that they have to prove themselves. And if the same thing's been going on for years and years, it's a very natural reaction to have that. But you do build our trust back, certainly Buck has built mine back. And I know many people that that is true of. But was going out all the time. Sober people been telephoning him. You know, I can smell a drunk on the phone to this day. And <laughs> I, I, I wondered about this. Well-dressed people would come by the office to see him. And I was curious, and I was angry, and I was jealous, and all this. And so that night came when... My attitude was, I'm going to. I don't know where he's going, but I'm going to. And he came in and said, I'll see you about 9.30 or 10. I said, well, I'm going to. And he said, all right, come on. I could have killed him. You know, there's nothing worse than being angry and having somebody not react to your anger. Went out and got in the car and there wasn't anybody else. I didn't know where we were going. But I couldn't ask him because then he'd know I didn't know. And that's very important to us. For you not to know, we don't know. You know, when Buck was out there drinking, I, and I wouldn't know where he was, I'd say, he'd come back and I'd say, well, it snow in the mountains. Well, I don't know. I was in the mountains. Well, off Mountains. Uh, <laughs> did you go to Papa Nash's at Myrtle Beach? No, I wasn't at Myrtle Beach. off Myrtle Beach. And I would, I'd throw out things to get responses that would inform me and would tell me. I said things I didn't believe myself in order to get him to tell me what I wanted to know that only he knew. But at any rate, um, that day that I, that night that I... He said, come on. Went out and got in the car, and we're riding over, and very silent. I'm a, like a blowfish out of water. I don't know where I'm going. I still don't like to get in the car. I don't know where I'm going. And there wasn't anybody else to do any chatter with. Got over there, and he pointed to the stairwell, and he said... They meet down there, but of course I wasn't going to ask him, my God, you know, you don't ask a drunk anything, they're they're sorry, they're no good, they're irresponsible, illogical, self-centered, immature, well, I, you know, I don't have to go on. <laughs> and I went down, I didn't know where I was, went in a room and I was talking to this lady and knew nothing about al whatsoever, it had to be just idle conversation. And then in a little bit, one of the men in that group turned and said, won't you ladies join us? And we went and were seated. I don't know how they opened the meeting, I'm sure, they're the same as they do to this day, with the serenity prayer, the purpose, and the steps. But all of a sudden, this lady that I'd been talking to, they said, our program tonight is Anne. And this lady got up front. And I, when I listened to her, I don't know anything about her program. I couldn't identify with any of that. I just remember her story, and as a very young, young, young woman, a man had married her and taken her to California, and when she got pregnant, he abandoned her. And she would earn living for she and her, this child, by saying, I'll make you a dress for $5 if you'll buy the material and the pattern. I'll knit you a sweater for $5 if you buy the yarn and tell me what pattern. And I thought, oh, I'm not much, but I'm better equipped to earn a living than that. And I felt guilty about that. And I never saw Anne again. And I've been to meetings in virtually every state in the United States and all the provinces of Canada. And I've never seen Anne again. It was sufficient that she was in one room one night to share and gave me some beginning of insight, some beginning of understanding. Well, because I've been talking to her, she was from another group. She thought I belonged to that group. And the group thought I had come with her. So I didn't get the newcomer welcome. And sometimes we stress the newcomer welcome and then don't don't give them a program or a meeting that's based on Al-Anon. But they gave me a there was a meeting that was pure Al-Anon, and it attracted me, and I started going back. And I've been going back ever since. And I came into the Al-Anon family groups in October of 1967 and I'm not an old-timer, and I'm not a newcomer. I'm just plodding. I'm just plodding along. In the last uh, two years, a lot of things have happened to us. Uh, many good things, and many some, some things have required some coping with. I had the aortic valve replaced in my heart, and then I had a stroke, and then we had this bump up a month ago, but you know it's all right. God hasn't brought us this far to throw us away now. And what we need, whatever we need to do whatever he would have us to do, we will have. And what he doesn't do for us, he has given us the tools to do it for ourselves. I'm not one that believes in we have to be completely reliant on God for everything. I think I have to be completely on God to tell me, to guide me, uh, and to learn more about the tools to be able to do. But, uh, there's, remember the old song, His eye is on the sparrow? His eye is on all of us, no matter who we are. But he doesn't fly for the sparrow. He doesn't eat for the sparrow. And neither does he for us. Because he has given us the Ability to do those things for ourselves. I'm going to talk a little bit about the steps. Because it doesn't matter what similarities there might be in our experiences. And we may never see one another again. But no matter where we go, the steps are there and available to us. And no matter whether we're apart or together, God is with both of us and with all of us. And so, but the steps is the recovery. My recovery does not lie in what you have done, nor does yours rely in what I've done. And so I like to share the steps because that's the basis of it all. And that is, if we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. I thought, of course I'm powerless, because I equated failure with powerless. And I, for a long time, I realized, I admitted, I was hopeless, not powerless, but hopeless, and my life was unmanageable. But for a long time now, I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, but that's not all. Time and place and circumstance. I'm powerless over you, and I'm powerless over me. With there's no God in the first step. It is realization of where I am, powerless, and in a state of unmanageability. And that doesn't stop entirely when you do these steps any more than going down to the altar of a church and and confessing uh, cleans the record for the rest of your life. And the steps have to be constantly revisited in my book. My life is unmanageable. First, I thought, since one night in a red Pontiac convertible, we had a terrible argument. And life had been bad since then. And then I realized, I've come to realize, that my life's been unmanageable any time I thought I could do it alone. And any time I don't acknowledge there is a higher power. And that a man and a woman created all of us uh, by going to bed. Um, Conceived us, excuse me. But God created us all. Created us all equal. And everything that God has to offer is available to all of us if we're willing to seek it. And we're willing to choose those health, make those healthy choices. The second step says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had no problem with the need to be restored to sanity. I have had shock treatments, and boy, I told God about that. It wasn't fair. I wasn't the drunk. Why did I have to have shock treatments, you know? Um, But I will tell you this when I came out from that, I didn't have any feeling of anything changed. I was feeling like I was suspended and the world was going on around me. And I realized I no longer cared about things I had cared about intensely prior to that. And then I came to accept the fact perhaps I cared too much about some of those things, and it was really more healthy for me to let go of some of them, to back off from some of them. But I'm of the old school. I came to meetings. I came to, I awakened, and I came to believe. And the power I believed in first was the members of AA and Al-Anon. Because I related more to AA women than I did to Al-Anon women. In those days, everybody was so good, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth, and I wanted to throw up. (laughs) Nobody talked about sitting around for hours trying to figure out how to kill him and get away with it. You know, I spent a lot I remember one time Buck was passed out, and I thought, all right, I, I weighed about 100 pounds more than I do now a pillow on his face, smothering him. He's dead. I turn him over with his face in the pillow, and then I go call the police. Now, how hysterical would you be? Do you want to call and say, my husband's
1: dead?
0: <laughs> and so, what degree of hysteria? And I was thinking about this, and I thought, what if the girls come in and catch me lying over their father's face with a pillow? And I was a Sunday school teacher at the time. As Ramona used to say, you want to know what's the matter with the young people of America? Look who their Sunday school teachers are. <laughs> But um And so again, I was a failure. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Um, but everybody was so good and they dressed like they were going to church. And uh, they had a lot of this chit-chat about things that I didn't identify with because I was not in lived the style they lived or the area they lived and all of this. And when I started taking meetings to Broughton Hospital, I told the women, don't you say one word after you get out of this car that has to do with trips or jewelry or presents or fun things, because the people that are hearing you overhear that may not even be able to get out of town. And with your talk, you're going to build a wall, because they're not going to identify with your social activities. They're not going to. And I'm opposed to meetings in homes because of that. There's many people that don't have homes with enough chairs to seat a number of people, or enough cups to serve coffee. And when you don't have, it's hard to admit you don't have. And that's why I like meetings that are in places where you know, always know exactly where that meeting is and what to expect. Um, The third step says made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understand him. It's just a decision to turn our will and our lives. And I'm used to think, you know, well, am I going to go to Rough River or aren't I? You know, that was the extent of mine. But then it really boils down to, uh, is this for God or for Virginia? Is this what God would have me do? Am I rushing a decision because I want it to be a certain way and I'm not really listening to the other side. And so when I made my decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, it started me, and it was a long time before I heard this and these exact words, it started me on the, I know I was headed in that direction, on seeking the presence of God. Seeking it. And I've heard a man, a very wise man named Pascal say, "If you are seeking God, you have found him. but what what is your what is your perception of what God is that you're holding out for? We have to we have to seek God with an open hand and be whatever he would whatever he fills it with. And sometimes he fills it with the words of the least likely person. You know, you go to a meeting and you just can't stand some people. Well, usually it's because they're acting just like you do, <laughs> but then there's the jealousy that moves in, and you refuse to hear what they have to say. And that may be the very one that has a message for me. But they, these, this is what we do, what we start with, and then we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Not an yeah. exercise in self-condemnation, not a seeking good and bad, but the truth. I heard a man say one time, if you were inventorying a jewelry store and found a bushel of onions, you wouldn't say, Oh, well, I won't put that down. They don't belong in a jewelry store. If you found them in the jewelry store, you put them down. And it's the search for truth. And the truth is, if you're seeking through this inventory what it offers, you have one asset immediately, and that's willingness. And that's an asset. You're willing, because I don't know about you, I didn't know where it was going to take me. I didn't know where it was going to take me. And I think if we can put down successes we've had, I did cook a good dinner, had a good stove. Uh, I did do a, a good job at writing that letter, as long as I remember to use that petition in the prayer that we close our meetings with, that says, For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. God gives me the ability to do certain things, and I am blessed in the process, but the, the, the glory and the real source of anything good in me or anybody else is a power greater than we are. And so we can put it down as long as we acknowledge the fact that it's because God gives us that ability or gives us that opportunity that that has come about. I took this written inventory. You know, I don't go to market without a list. And it doesn't matter if I forget to get something, but this is life and death. Oh, you may still walk around, but I've seen the walking dead, haven't you? There's nothing in their eyes. It's just glazed over. It's, it's, it's terrible. And I'm sure that we, have all of us, have been in that condition. I took this written inventory, and the first lady I went to... As I was Because my first inventory, I didn't know, I couldn't identify the defects of character or the motivation behind my behavior. And so when I didn't know, but something was on my mind, I'd write down the incident and how I'd behaved or how I'd reacted and all. And her eyebrows went up into her hair, and I backed off. And this was a lady that I don't think had ever had a drink in her life, and she had been a pillar in the church, and she just hadn't been the rowdy I had been. And I don't know whether I was unwise in who I chose or was I was well you're ready to do it. And then I watched another lady and she's a dual member. Oh, she's dead now, bless her heart. Dual member. She's sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and married to an alcoholic and um, attended Al Anon. And I went to her and just asked her to hear my fifth step. Well, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience was Once she heard my fifth step, and it was such a wonderful experience, and it was terrible too. I'd share something, and I couldn't go on, and she'd share something of her life with me. And she never criticized or judged, there was any expression of disdain or, oh, and not enough. And she would share with me. And I had a sense of a word that people say, oh, That's not Al-Anon, that's not literature, that's not program word, but it is. You read the literature, you'll find it. I had a sense of salvation, and salvation means to come home, a sense of coming home. And what is home? A place of safety, a place of warmth, a place where you belong. And I had that with Edith. And she was my sponsor for 28 years, and then she died,
1: doggone it.
0: But I still think of her, you know, I, I'd call her and I'd say, and she'd say, well, Virginia, do you suppose you're doing like you did when such and such, that I'd shared her in my fifth step? Or she'd say to me, all right, Virginia, what were you doing? What were you saying? How had you been acting? Had you doing any reading today? You know, she gave it right back to me. She was good for me and good to me. I remember thinking, I'm saying to you, why do I have to do a fifth step? It meant to God and ourselves and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. You keep telling me that God knows me better than I know myself. And you keep telling me God loves me better than I love myself. And God knows all this already. And one of her favorite things to say was, well, think about it. I don't want to think about it. I want her to tell me. And then I realized it isn't for God's benefit. It's for mine. It's an exercise in self-discipline and honesty, and it's willingness at work to do a fifth step. It's many, many things. But it opens the door to freedom. Just like the first step isn't failure, it's freedom. I'm not responsible for another human being. I am not. Their successes are theirs, and their failures are theirs. I am responsible for me, though. The sixth step says we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And, you know, I don't... I don't like that, because, I, you see, God removes him when he sees fit, because I've come to realize something doesn't mean God's immediately, because I've recognized he's going to remove it. It's God's timetable, and God doesn't remove all defects of character if there's something we can learn from it not being removed by him. I was uh, very much into self-pity one time, and I went to see this lady. I was talking to her, and her husband, who I knew both of them quite well, came in. We were in there, Dan, and he said, oh, I'll go in the other room. I said, oh, go sit down. And he went over to the other side of the room and sat down, and we were talking, and she said, Virginia, I really don't know what to tell you. And he said, do you mind if I say something? I said, no. He said, what chapter of the Red Ring Club do you belong? I'd never heard the expression. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I think you've been sitting on the pity potty so long you've got a red ring. Laughter my head knew the antidote for self-pity. I couldn't identify what it was. But I knew gratitude was the antidote for self-pity. And that's when I went home and started doing a gratitude list. I thought that was the corniest thing I'd ever heard when I got a gratitude list. But I thanked God for dirty ashtrays, because I like to smoke. I thank God for dirty dishes, and meant we had food to eat. I thank God for laundry to be washed and yet we were all dressed because I remember when I used to have to wash the kids' clothes at night so they have a clean outfit to wear the next day. I thank God for a car to drive. I thank God for God. I thank God for the forgiveness or acceptance or whatever it is of my husband for my past behavior. How I ridiculed and scorned, belittled, was contemptuous, and that seems to be past. Forgot where I was. My name is Virginia. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and the seventh step says humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Lois told me herself that the difference between shortcomings and defects of character. But Bill was taught not to repeat in a f- one sentence, a following sentence the same words he used in the previous one. And I would put to you this if you're barefooted and you walk outdoors here and you cut a foot on a piece of one foot on a piece of tin and another on a piece of glass, don't you still have two cut feet? Aren't they still both trouble troublesome to us? So I think but the humbly ask, and that's honestly, because humbly tells me I do not deserve, I have not earned the right to have and know and feel the way I feel. We do not deserve for our lives to be as they are. There's no way, there's no way we could get from there to here. We couldn't have set out on life to be here this day and made the trip. We couldn't have. It has to be that God's been caring for us all the time, even when we weren't seeking him. And then, the, see, the seventh step, I believe it is, says uh, entirely, no, it says, made a list of persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Is that it? That's eight. What's seven? Humbly ask Okay, I've got my number. I'm not good with figures. We we (laughs) can tell that. (laughs) Eight, made a list of persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And uh, there were a lot of people I needed to make amends to, but I didn't know who they were or where they were. There were clerks in stores and service station attendants and people in other cars on the highway and people that I had worked with in the past. But my belief of the God of my understanding, I think, is in touch with everybody he ever created, no matter what realm they are now. And I pray to him that if they have any memory of me that causes them distress or pain that he will remove from them that memory. I don't ask to be let off the hook, but I ask that he remove from them what I cannot do. And of course, in making amends, sometimes it's a, I couldn't care less. But that's not my problem. How my amends are accepted is how they're accepted or rejected. It's important that I acknowledge, I acknowledge Nine says, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. I do not have a right to ease my guilty conscience at somebody else's expense. A man came out to see us one day, and, and he said to me, I don't know where I started, we'll go home by six anyhow. Don't about. Um, he said that he was going down the eastern part of the state to look up uh, a woman that. Uh, he had gotten pregnant some years before, and it was about time for that child to go to school, and he wanted to provide financially, and da 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 da, da. And I said, I, know, I think you better take a good look at the, the ninth step. Oh, what do you mean? I said, you're trying to use your guilty conscience. You don't know what that mother has told that child. You don't know anything about it, and you have no right to go in and thrust your fist like through the, her heartstrings to make yourself feel better. He didn't like me, but that's all right, and I don't know what he ever did, and that's all right, too. Um, The tenth step says, we continue to take personal inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. I think they knew I was coming, that they put that promptly in there, because I like to be sure I need to do what I need to do, but to continue to take inventory. And this is not a written inventory, but sometimes it is, but most often it isn't. It's a reviewing of my day. I remember saying I always did it just before I went to bed. And a man said to me one night, well, how can you probably admit it when you're going to bed? And I thought, oh, I'm doing it wrong. And I got to thinking about it, and I realized the first person I needed to honestly admit it to was myself. Because I said, I'm sorry, not mean it. You know, I'm sorry. and that's supposed to take care of it, and it didn't. So to be honest with myself is the first thing in step. Uh, 10, and then to meet the others whenever, uh, uh, as soon as I have the opportunity. And I call the 11th step the happiness step. And I bring the steps into the present. We all know, I'm sure, why they're written in the past tense. But for a long time, I think I had a sense of having done them because I was reading them and hearing them in the past tense. So it's important to me to bring them into today. Instead of sought through prayer and meditation, I say I seek through prayer and meditation knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. It's the program in a nutshell. If, we, if I seek, how? Through prayer and meditation. What? Knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry it out. And God doesn't expect us to be perfect. You know, human beings got that sentence in there, we aren't perfect. God doesn't expect us to be at least my God doesn't. And then the 12th um, step says, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. In all our affairs. And that's when somebody's rude or unkind. It's when somebody busts in line. It's all those things that we don't. We find rude and disrespectful and unkind. We practice the program. I remember when I first went was going to New York on the board, my very first board meeting, uh, the chairman said something, and I said, we can't do that. It was back when regional service seminars were on, uh, experimental, and they were talking about putting it in the manual about what we would do, and I said, we can't do that. He said, we can't, and I said, no, sir. And I heard a couple of people, huh. When I said, sir, and I said, because it's experimental and it has to be approved by a conference before it becomes permanent and would go in the manual then. So we moved on and after a while we were in the coffee room and somebody asked me if I'd like a cup of coffee and I said, yes, and they brought him. I said, thank you, sir. He said, oh, you don't have to sir me. I'm not chairman of the board. I said, my dear man, it has nothing to do with you that I say, sir, to you. It reflects badly on me if I don't. And that's why how I respond to things is a reflection on me, has nothing to do with the other person. And that can keep me from getting into a lot of squabbles, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of anger, and a lot of, a lot of uglies. A lot of uglies. Because if my obituary had been written in 1967, you could use it today. Because all those statistical things, or all that information that go in obituaries does not change. But I have changed. I no longer hate little women. I hate little women. They put it in gear and they would take little steps across the office floor, and they'd say, "This uh, this typewriter needs moved." And they, "Oh, where do you want to put it?" And I'd say, "This typewriter needs uh, where do you want us to put it?" And I'd go across. I need this typewriter moved. Where are you going to put it? There's a difference. Where do you want it? Where are you going to put it? You know. I'm the kind that has a breakdown on the highway, and I'm flagging, and they go on. This little woman flagging, and it's, stop. Oh, I didn't like little women. And now some of my best friends can walk under my arms. You know, you know, I know. I want to tell you about our girls. If anybody doubts the presence and the existence of God, I would have you know them and their lives. Because the way they grew up, they shouldn't be the women they are today. They're all self-sufficient. All have been on their in their careers for 28 and 30 years. Uh, all own their own homes. Uh, none of them are married. Two have been or divorced. Uh, we have three grandchildren: one grandson and two granddaughters. And uh, they're wonderful. Grandchildren are especially nice because when the sun sets, you can send them home. You know. <laughs> No, but they are dear, and I'm very grateful to them. And I had to come to the realization that God didn't send me those three children that I would be a good mother to them. He sent them to me that I would be a better person because of them. And I am. I'm a better person. And we have a wonderful relationship. We came home from a weekend away, and they were out there washing all our windows. They'll come in the house, and, Mom, what can I do for you? They send flowers, and they bring flowers, and they pick up some good produce at the market and bring it. I thought you would enjoy this. Come home, and your bed's been stripped and washed, and the men's washed and made up clean, unearned and undeserved. The grace of God in their lives, showering blessings on us. about to run out. If you you don't sit down when you run out, you'll start lying. Well, what are some of the things I've learned? There's been so many, but I think some of the peak things I've learned, I learned about options, choices. I was so bright, I'd come up to a brick wall and just stand there. Never think to turn this way or that way or around. Never thought in terms of choices or options. I've learned that you can be so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good, and, not to, and to avoid becoming that. I can remember the first time we met a couple that we both liked. Many times we meet a couple, and I like one, and Buck would like the other, or vice versa, but both of us like both of them. And I remember such an exciting feeling about that, And now there's so many. There's so many. It doesn't detract one bit about the first couple that felt that way about, let's say I didn't know that we would be able to have that feeling with many people. We are truly blessed. And those aren't idle words. We are truly blessed. I am going to close with some lines of not conference approved literature. Aren't we arrogant to think God gives wisdom only to AA and, mem- and Al- AA and Al Anon members that write literature? You know, some of the greatest things I know, nobody ever was an Al Anon or AA. But these words are I know not what the future holds of marvel or surprise. I'm assured alone that life and death God's mercy underlies. And if my heart and flesh are weak to bear an untried pain, the bruised reed God will not break, but strengthen and sustain. No offering of my own I have, no works my faith to prove. I can but give the gift he gave and plead his love for love. I know not where God's islands lift their fronded palms in air. I only know I cannot drift beyond his love and care. And if my faith is vain and if my hopes betray, pray for me that I may find a surer, safer way. And thou, O Lord, who knows thy creatures as they be, forgive me if too close I have leaned my human heart to thee. Thank you very much.